Uh, if you got your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans, chapter 8. I'm going to grab something real quickly, all right? I'll be right back. So yesterday on Facebook, this uh, meme started going around about that church ought to be as exciting as football, and that if uh, your pastor makes a good point tomorrow, dump some Gatorade on his head. Anybody see that? How many of you people saw that, right? I know some of you did, because some of you are commenting on other things you could do. Um, When I walked in just a few minutes ago, this was sitting on the edge of the stage. And I am glad to report to you it is empty, I think, right? So no Gatorade point is going to be happening, but it did make me think about something, all right? So this afternoon, the world's going to stop for three or four hours and hopefully watch uh, Peyton Manning's celebration final game as he's whisked off into retirement with one last championship because that's what we're all rooting for. But uh, that's what we, you know, you go watch the football game and people are going to be excited about it. Some people, Broncos and, and Panthers fans, are going to be really excited or really upset. And the idea concept of that little meme is that we get excited about things that don't matter that much. And here's the truth I want to tell you today, all right? Um, I'm glad nobody's dumping Gatorade on my head. I'm glad none of you have come shirtless with Jesus written on your, written on you, or the John 3.16 sign is unnecessary, although good and appropriate. But um, we're going to talk about some exciting stuff today. I mean, we're going to talk about the, these verses in Romans 8 that finish up this whole series are some of the most exhilarating, exciting things that you could ever know in your life. It is much better than anybody crossing a line with a ball in their arm. It is much more exhilarating than a last second field goal miss or make. And so, I just want you to be prepared that this is earth shattering, shouting out loud, good, great news. It is the best possible news you could ever imagine. It is what you couldn't dream about if you tried to dream of the best case scenario. And I don't want, because we've heard it before, or because you're here on Sunday mornings, and you're thinking about the game, or you're tired from last night, for us to miss just the sheer excitement of it. I'm going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Before we get there, I want to tell you a story about a guy that um, I read about this week that I just find interesting. And this is the guy here. Um, anybody know who this is, by the way? This guy's name is Ed Catmull, and he is um, has a Ph.D. in computer science. Um, he is credited with major um, advancements in computer animation and technology. And all of you knew all of that, I'm sure. Um, but what he's best known for is in 1986... A guy named Steve Jobs. Anybody ever heard Steve Jobs? Steve Jobs bought and formed this little company called Pixar. And he named him chief technical officer. And from that moment, Pixar, which is 30 years old, Pixar um, began making all these incredible movies. He is the man, Ed Catmull, by the way, is the man responsible for all the technology, uh, most of it for Toy Story, Toy Story 2. Toy Story 3, for advancements that have happened. And over the last 30 years, Pixar has cranked out some amazing 
movies, things that are for many people in this room, their children's or even theirs kind of story of growing up. You revolve around Pixar. We've talked about them here before. They make just incredible movies. Well, he wrote a book called Creativity Inc. Okay. And it's a book about how to have a workplace environment that is created. And if you work in a kind of an environment um, that is creatively uh, um, directed and you, you figure out how to create this creative environment, it would be a great kind of read. But he wrote this book called Creativity Inc. And there's lots of it about industrial stuff and how to make uh, team building important and creativity. But right in the middle, he goes on what you could call an if tangent. We've been talking about ifs all uh, the past several weeks since the beginning of the year, these if questions. And in the middle of it, he goes on this if tangent and he starts to talk about all the couples that have formed at Pixar. People that came to work for Pixar and were single and met each other as Pixar employees and are now married. And he calls them Pixar marriages. And then he says those Pixar marriages have produced Pixar children. Because they got married, they met at Pixar, worked at Pixar, wouldn't have met probably outside of Pixar, met, got married, had kids, and so you have these Pixar kids. And he says, if there had never been a Pixar, if I hadn't accepted Steve Jobs' offer, if we wouldn't have built this company, those people wouldn't have gotten married, and those kids wouldn't have gotten born. So those people have me to thank for that. says that in a joking kind of way. But it is this kind of interesting thought of what if history was different or things changed? In fact, I don't know if you are aware of this or not, but there's a whole kind of section of history called counterfactual theory. That some have said the historian's favorite question is what if? And they imagine all kinds of things about well, what if life were different? What if things happened differently? For instance, questions that they ask a lot are things like, what if one of the four musket balls that passed through George Washington's coat during a battle in 1755 had gone just an inch over to his heart? What if George Washington had died in 1755? What would history look like? What if the D-Day invasion that was close to failing had failed and had not stopped the Nazi regime, what would it look like? What if the Confederates had won the Battle of Little Round Top at Gettysburg on July 2nd, 1863, which is not that far-fetched in history? What would be different? What if? It's a popular question right now, even in literature and movies and television Perhaps the first place that I remember this question of what if something changed in history, how would it impact the future, came in one of the greatest 80s movies, which just having 80s movie means that it's great already, right? Greatest decade ever. Greatest 80s movie, reimagine what would happen if someone changed the future. What was the movie? You remember? Back to the Future, right? Now, you want to talk about a creepy plot line, Right? What's the what's the story of Back to the Future? A guy goes back, and what happens? He meets his mom, and what happens? She falls in love with her son. You have to get over the creep factor when you think about the movie, all right? But if you remember, you go back, and you remember that, if you remember the movie Back to the Future, how many of you have never seen Back to the Future? Oh, my goodness. We're going to have a watch party this afternoon, all right? So, if you go... 
watch Back to the Future. He goes back. His mom starts to fall in love with him. And what happens to the family picture? It starts to fade away, right? There's this whole idea. In fact, Doc Brown says to, Doc Brown, the mad scientist, says to Marty McFly, obviously the time continuum is disrupted, creating a new temporal event sequence resulting in this alternate reality. Exactly, right? You got that? And so back to the future, back in the 80s, had this idea, if you change one moment, if something changes, it changes everything. Well, in today, one of the most popular television shows on right now is a television show called The Flash. And The Flash has all these things where he can go back and change time. But if he does, it impacts the world in major ways. One decision. There was a novel written that's turned into a TV series that will be coming on Hulu soon called 1122 63. And the question there was, what if we could go back and just stop the assassination of JFK? And the book suggests that even if you changed that, it would have major ramifications for the history of the world. Back to Ed Catmule. 1957, Ed Catmule was 12. His family went to Yellowstone Park. And on the way back from Yellowstone, they were driving on a windy, narrow canyon road that had a steep cliff off to the side. And while they were driving home, a car coming in the opposite direction swerved into their lane. And at that moment, Ed's mom screamed and his dad veered. Ed said that by their estimation, they came two inches from driving off that cliff. And he said, two more inches means no Pixar which means no Pixar marriage, which means no Pixar babies. He said those kids owe their life to two inches. He calls them two-inch moments in our lives. What-if moments? That a decision, small as you can imagine, could have an eternal or at least major impact on this world. Now, here's the truth. If that's the case, it can make life scary to live. Two inches here, two inches there. I mean, people talk about sports being a game of inches, and we've all seen a game decided by the smallest of margins. But we're talking about life-changing stuff. But you don't have to be afraid of those decisions because of what we read In Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. What is perhaps the biggest if and most important if in all of life. Romans 8, 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? Now what is he talking about? What are these things? Well, it's what just came before we talked about last week. The Holy Spirit's interceding on our behalf. God works all together, works together all things for our good, for those that are called to to him that are loved by him and called according to his purpose that we have been saved through faith that grace is a part of us in fact i think this is talking not just about the last few verses but it's talking about the entire book of romans that has come from romans 1 all the way through the end of romans 8 he's saying of everything we've heard with everything we've heard all about god's salvation plan about romans 3:23 that the uh, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god of romans 6:23 the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life through jesus christ our lord 
that everything we've heard, what do we do on the basis of what we've heard, what we know, what has been stated so far? What do we do with that? If God is for us, who can be against us? He says, what do we do with it? What do do we do? And he starts to ask these rhetorical questions. And he's asking rhetorical questions to lead them to the answer that is obvious and that comes at the end of this chapter. But he starts with saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? And there are a couple of questions that that statement asks or answers that we need to be aware of. And here's the truth. When the rubber meets the road, when life punches you in the face, when life is more difficult than you thought, when you make poor decisions, when people around you make poor decisions and life begins to feel like it's spinning out of control, you need the answer to the questions that this passage answers. And the first one is simply this. Is God able to do anything about what is happening? Is God able to do anything about it? In fact, in that whole phrase, and you don't know, if you if we went word by word through that phrase, if God is for us, who can be against us? The most important word in that whole phrase is the word God. And here's the reason. Because your conception of God will determine how you answer that question and how that question plays out in your life. A.W. Tozer, is one of my favorite authors, if not my favorite, says, I've used this quote many times, but it's so true. He says that what comes to mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. And the problem is most of us have lost a sense of the awe of who God is. You see, God created us in the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the universe and created the world and created us. And since that day, mankind has been attempting to recreate God in their own image. So we want to think about what God is like. And most of the time, if we're honest with ourselves, we think God looks, acts, thinks like we do. And Scripture is very clear that that is not the case at all. Look at what Isaiah 55 says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. He says, I'm different than you are. When we read that, we're like, yeah, he's different, he's different. But we think it's like just a little bit different, like just a, just a small bit different. And then he says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth. Now, when the heavens here is talking about the universe, the created world, what we see at night and what we don't see at night. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. He says, this is how different we are. As far as it is to the outer reaches of the universe, that's how far my thoughts are different than yours. When God spoke in Genesis chapter 1 and said, let there be light, light came hurtling out of his mouth at 5.88 trillion miles a year. And as it's flying out into the outer reaches, creating as he speaks, the universe is created in a moment. But here's something really cool, all right? We're not going to get too scientific here today. Is that okay? But we're going to get a little bit. Scientists now tell us that based on, I don't know how they base all this, but that the universe is still expanding and being created. That is, it still has new things developing and is expanding. So think about this for a minute, all right? When God spoke, let there be light, 
however many years ago he spoke that, when those words came out of his mouth and he spoke creation into being, it had such power that it is still being felt today. We're in the office, we have a little bit of a joke occasionally. Because uh, I've been here now eight and a half years, and uh, my primary uh, administrative assistant for the last eight and a half years has been Deborah Williams. Deborah, who has been here longer than eight and a half years, um, is here, and, and we, you know, we meet in staff meetings, and we'll talk about projects coming up and things are happening. And about once a week, sometimes more than that, I'll walk through the office, we're talking about stuff, and she'll say, what's the status of, or where are we on, or... Uh, this is particularly prevalent around Brazil time when we're trying to get all the Brazil stuff in. When it, have you have you sent out? Are you what? And, I, and when will this? Is it finished? And I just about eight and a half years ago, I used a phrase that I use with her anytime she asks me a question like that. Almost, I say, "I'm working on it." Is it done yet? We're working on it. All right. She loves when I do that. She absolutely loves it. Here's the thing. When you talk about God and creation, he's working on it. He's still actively involved in it. It's still happening. Now think about this, okay? When you go outside, if you were to get out in the middle of nowhere, where's nowhere around here? Ridgetop, Greenbrier, somewhere around there? Uh, where's nowhere, right? So you get out, Orlando, somewhere around there. You know, you get out nowhere, all right? Go across the Kentucky border, really nowhere, right? So you get out nowhere and you look up into the sky and on the night when the sky is the clearest and you can see the furthest, the furthest star that you would be able to see is like 1,500 light years away. 1,500 light years away. So that's 1,500 times 5.88 trillion miles away. Now, here's the crazy thing about that. We don't know that that place is still there because the light we see started coming our way 1,500 years ago. That's crazy, isn't it? Now, with telescopes, they can see farther than that. And they have found a star. The farthest star they found is 15.5 billion light years away. Now think about this, all right? If you take 15.5 billion, I told you we were going to do some science. I didn't say anything about math, but here it is. If you take 15.5 billion and multiply it times 5.88 trillion, you get, I don't have a clue, but it's a lot. Right? Don't do it on your phone. Some of you got your phones. I say, don't, I don't want to know. All right? Just know a lot. All right? As high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. Can I tell you the biggest problem most of us have with our problems is not our problems. It's our view of God is way too low. We think him as a really good, the best manager or CEO or leader that we've ever met. But his ways and his power and his ability are as far away as billions times trillions of miles. It's not even close. I read a pastor this week that said, instead of complaining to God about how big our problems are, we ought to be telling our problems about how big our God is. G.K. Chesterton, who was an author and Christian author, said, how much happier you would be, how much more of you there would be if the hammer of a higher God would smash your small universe. If God 
This isn't, this isn't some king and somewhere else. This is some advocate general. This is not some guy that's pretty good at some stuff. If the God, king of kings, Lord of lords, if God. Here's the second question you have to ask from that passage of scripture. Is he for us? That's what it says, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? So the question we have to ask is, is God for us? And if you read scripture at all, if you investigate scripture at all, you discover that there is absolutely no doubt that our God is for us. In every possible way. Now, in case we didn't get that, Paul says, in case you didn't get that in the first eight chapters that I've written to you about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to wipe away our sins, in case you missed that point, let me just remind you of how much God is for us. Look what he says in the next verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. If God is for us, do you think that's coincidental? He wrote that there. If God is for us, He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He says, listen, he didn't even spare his own son. Is he for us? Absolutely. Now, here's what's interesting about this. The the phrasing he used, every commentary I read said the phrasing that is used here is to remind the reader, is to remind the Jewish reader particularly of a particular passage of Scripture in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham takes Isaac and he offers his son as a sacrifice before the Lord. And the Lord says, stop, Abraham. And he says... I now know that you would not hold anything back from me, that you are completely 100% for me. And as a result, Abraham, I have spared your son. And what he's saying is, the comparison is, just as God looked at Abraham and said, you you being willing to give up your son is proof that you are for me, that we ought to look at Jesus Christ on the cross and say, there is no other proof that I need that God is for me, that he sacrificed his one and only son. I was watching... um a video last night. It's called. It's on a website called The Increase. If you're into sports at all, um, I want to kind of see some guys give testimony and talk about their faith. You ought to go watch. Just go to The Increase. I think you can put that into um, Google and go The Increase. And they've produced like a 22-minute halftime show for tonight. Um, if you wanted to watch that at halftime of the of the, I can't say the the big game. The football game that's happening tonight. If you want to watch it, it's it's really cool. They do like interviews with uh, the, Thomas Davis, the linebacker for the Panthers, Drew Brees, quarterback for the Saints. But one of the uh, uh, interviews is with uh, Trent Dilfer, Super Bowl winning quarterback, ESPN analyst. An, analyst. I never knew this about him, but tr- uh, Trent Dilfer um, lost like a five or six year old son who got sick with some illness. His heart stopped. He was on a machine for like a month. And he and his wife had to make the decision to pull the life support. And I'm sitting there. I'm watching this last night in the kitchen, like on my laptop. I'm like, man, I got I got I got dust all in this room. I got to get it out of, you know, something's happening here. And then he says, and listen, I'm not a huge Trent Dilfer fan. I mean, playing or analyst or any of that, but... Uh, Man, my respect for him just shot through the roof. 
He said, giving my son up is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. He said, then I remembered that I serve a God who gave his up for me. Man, is he for us? In case that wasn't enough, he asked two more kind of rhetorical questions. He says, who's going to bring any charge against us? Who's going to come to God and say, God, you're not going to believe what this person's done. God's the one that justified me. That's like going, hey, um, judge, I know you said he was innocent, but um, I don't know if you've heard this charge against him. Just like I, I said he was innocent. He said, who's going to do that? You've been forgiven. You're free. It's done. It doesn't matter. And who's going to condemn us? Is who's going to be able to say anything negative about us in condemnation? It's Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so the question is, is God for us? I want you to notice something. This is really cool that happens in Romans chapter 8. We see here that Jesus is interceding for us. And so there's no doubt in our mind from this that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He is explaining to the Father the good things about us. He's interceding. He's showing His blood covers over our sin. He's, in, he's interceding on our behalf. Well, just a few verses earlier, it tells us that the Holy Spirit Spirit is there with us interceding when we can't intercede. So we have Jesus. This is uh, one person of the Trinity interceding on our behalf. We have the Holy Spirit, another person of the Trinity interceding on our behalf. And then we have God who is completely for us, who gave a son for us, interceding on our behalf through his son. All three members of the Trinity are actively working in pursuit of you and in love of you. That would have been a good place to dump some Gatorade, but that's all right. I forgive you. Nobody's going to condemn us. And then they ask, the, this is the last question. Can anything get in his way? <laughs> I mean, this is what Paul's answering here. He says, first of all, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And don't forget, he, he's for us. But he gave his son for us, his son who died and rose again and is interceding on our behalf. Well, yeah, but what, what, if, what if we could get in the way? What if other people get in the way? What if powers could get in the way? What if circumstances get in the way? What can separate us from the love of Christ? And then he lists all the bad stuff. Well, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Anybody want to volunteer for any of that stuff? Well, that's not good stuff. But he said, even if that, what he's saying is that may happen in your life. You will probably, and the followers of Christ, we're probably going to experience all that. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness. Well, maybe not that, but danger. Or sword. But he's saying, I'm not guaranteeing a good life. He says, can that stuff separate us from the Lord? Can it? He didn't give the answer right away. In fact, he goes to the next to a verse. You go to the next verse. He says, for it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, people look at us and they say, oh, why, why are you following this Christ? Why are you following this God? You're just taken to be slaughtered. This isn't Rome, remember. This is where they were going to be executed for their faith. He says, well, is that all there is? Now love. The way he responds. Next verse. No. In fact, that's that's a, a, an emphatic, absolutely not. In no way. He says, because in all things, we are victorious and conquerors. In fact, he says, we're more than conquerors. We're like supercharged, victorious, top of the line through him who loved us. Because of what Christ has done, because of who he is, because of what God has done, we are counting on him. We are more than conquerors. Here's the thing. He is convinced that nothing can separate us. That's what he says in the next verse. For I am convinced. 
That means settled. That means no doubt. That doesn't mean beyond a reasonable doubt. That means beyond any doubt. And I love this. It's not because of us. It's because of God. I don't trust myself at all. I mean, I've walked into a clear sliding glass door. Anybody ever done that? I have, um, I still, I have been to Chef's Market many times in my life, and I almost always do the wrong thing or the push or pull at the door. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you're supposed to push or pull? I always, I went last night, took the girls, we had daddy-daughter date night, took the girls, and I almost hurt myself trying to open the door the wrong way. Like, I don't trust myself at all. Now here's what I ask. You know, we're about to read one of the greatest statements of the security of those that are in Christ and the security of a believer not to be able to lose your salvation. And here's what I would say. If I could lose my salvation, I would. If I could be responsible for losing my salvation, it'd be gone. Because I know me. And so I am thankful that the Lord doesn't allow me and He's able to keep it. There's no, no, nothing, nothing good there. Right? If you think you can keep your salvation, you need to check whether you're saved or not in the first place. Because we didn't earn it and we can't keep it. It's all Him. He says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything. If I forgot something, anything that's ever been created. Well, let me ask you, what's not been created? God. Anything else on your list? No, that's it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's it. Everything else is created. Nothing in creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, listen, it doesn't matter if you go into the Colosseum and a lion eats you alive. You will still be saved by our God. It means that it doesn't matter if they get you to a point where you don't have any way to sustain your family. Our God understands. Now, he's not saying that we're going to walk out this door and we're more than conquerors and we're going to walk down the street and just declare victory in the streets of Goodlettsville. And everything's going to change. And what he says is, the temporary sufferings of this world are nothing compared to the glorious future that we have. The advocates who argue on our behalf and the salvation that comes from him, the love of God. It's not a competition when it comes to God. And we get to be on his team. I read a story this week that I just loved. I loved the story. I loved all about it. Except I, I'm, I'm going to show you a picture in a minute. Not yet, but I'm going to show you a picture in a minute of a guy that I wasn't the biggest fan of. And there are lots of people in the world that are huge fans of his. And I wasn't. Uh, but it doesn't mean I don't appreciate his greatness. Okay? This guy. Anybody know this guy? Anybody know him? Who's that? Michael Jordan. I, I will tell you this. I did have a pair of Sky Jordans at one time in my life. Because that's what all the cool kids from Dyersburg, Tennessee... Wore to school, right? And so I had a pair of Sky Jordans. But this is Michael, one of his uh, moments of just glory as he was at the dunk. Got the tongue about to come out there. It's the dunk contest back when people watched the dunk contest. And it was really cool. Michael Jordan, um, at one game he played, March 28th, 1990, he played against the Cleveland Cavaliers. And, and for some reason, he always seemed to have a game against the Cleveland Cavaliers. He averaged almost 50 points against them in two seasons combined. 50 points a game. But on this particular night, March 28, 1990, Michael Jordan scored 69 points and had 18 rebounds. Now, I don't know if you follow basketball or not, but that's pretty good. Like, 
That's a good game, all right? 69 points, 18 rebounds. And after the game, they were talking to the guys in the locker room about what happened and about the game and all that MJ was doing. And they, they asked a guy, that uh, this guy. Now, there are a couple of you that may know this. You may know who this is. I know Kelly, Jeff Kelly knows. You may know who this is. It's number 34. He has three NBA championship rings. So you obviously ought to know who he is. It's not Pippen. This is Stacy Harris. All right. Stacy Harris, number 34, was a role player for the Chicago Bulls. And on that particular night, on March 28, 1990, Stacy Harris had one point. One point. And they're going around the locker room and they're asking questions and they're asking all the guys, how are you going to, man, how are you, this is an amazing game that Michael had. How are you going to remember this? And they said, Stacy Harris, how are you going to remember this game that Michael played? This is what Stacy said. I'll always remember this game. As the night that Michael and I combined for 70 points. <laughs> right? Like together we scored 70. I had one. He had the other 69. Right? Here's the cool thing for us. I'm not comparing Michael to God. But we do as little as possible in the grand scheme of things. And God does the rest. And we can trust in him. I kind of didn't tell you this, but that whole first verse that we looked at today says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? But that word in the original language really has a couple of meanings. I think the better translation is not if, because Paul's not asking a question if. He's saying since. Since God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't matter what your past has been. It doesn't matter the mistakes that you've made. It doesn't even matter what you've said this week or what you've thought this week or priorities have been this week. Since God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the idea is that we ought to be so overwhelmed by the glory and the grace and the mercy of our God that we say to him, whatever you want, whatever you need, whatever I can do, I want to give my one point to the effort. So are you willing to do that today? You have a couple of opportunities to respond. The first is our response time. There's going to be another opportunity after that, and so uh, I'll explain that afterwards. But maybe you're here today, and God's, you don't know if God's for you or not because you've never accepted his offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and if you're trying to make it to heaven or trying to make a good life or just trying to get through life without God, you're going to fail miserably because every single one of us has been stained by the reality of sin. And on our own, we're incapable of doing it. The wages of sin, it tells us in chapter 6, verse 23 of Romans, is death. But the second part of that verse reminds us that the gift of God is eternal life. And that through Jesus, we can be saved. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, today is the opportunity to do that. That small, seemingly decision will have eternal impact on you. It's Ed Catmull's two inches. Maybe you're here and you've been saved, but you've never followed in baptism. You say, it's just time for me to let people know that's where I stand. I'd like to talk to you about being baptized. I haven't been baptized after I've been saved. And I'd like to talk to you about that. I'd love to have a conversation with you. 
Maybe you're here and this is the place where God's leading you to join. You've been coming, you've been visiting, and you think, I'd like to be a member, be a part of First Baptist Goodlettsville. I'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe you just want to come and, and give some things to the Lord. Maybe there's some problems you've been thinking are too big and you haven't been thinking about your God being big enough. And today you just want to give that to the Lord and want to pray here at the front. We're going to be here. band's going to come play. I'm just going to ask you to obey and to respond. Let's pray together.